Our reading today is from Exodus 23, 20 through 33, page 63 of your pew Bibles. See, I am sending you an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and bring to you and bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessings will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornets ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land would become desolate and wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give you, I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. The word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mike. We are continuing our, <clears throat> our journey in Exodus, and let's pray as we do so. Lord, uh, be our teacher this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would connect dots for us. I pray that you would do and, and say and speak to people beyond what I'm able to, see, to say and explain, and that your word would truly work in power in us today. Amen. So um, Meg and I have some good friends in Illinois, um, David and Irina. Irina is from U the Ukraine. Um, and so they have two little kids. Uh, so when Russia invaded Ukraine um, a, a little over a year ago, David and Irina were really concerned because her parents still live there, her brother and her sister-in-law and her niece and nephew live there right in Kiev where the bombing was the worst. So they were just worried, sick. Um, and after a few weeks, my friend David said, okay, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to help out. 
So he, he didn't tell anyone except his wife that he was going. He got in a plane. He flew to Romania. He had a friend, friend from college who lives there pick him up, and they drove through the Carpathian Mountains in Romania across the border into Ukraine. And uh, he told this story for his hometown newspaper who interviewed him after he got back. <clears throat> but he said there were some pretty scary moments like being stopped at the border and being interrogated by the Ukrainian border guards because they thought he was a Russian spy. A single guy coming alone, no luggage, no anything. Well, after he got there to Kiev, he saw um, the bombed out buildings. He saw women, you know, sitting on the street begging because their husbands had already died. Uh, his, his family, his, his in-laws were living in, sleeping in bomb shelters. And I don't know a lot of the details, but miraculously, he said, he was able to help them escape the city, go to a safe place, and eventually they were able to cross into Austria, where they, where they are now living safely. Um, but he said in an interview for, his, for this newspaper, it was scary. There was this reality that I'm actually in a war zone. Now, we have to realize that we live in a war zone. Not a physical war zone with bombs and guns and soldiers, but a spiritual war zone. There is a battle going on for our souls in this world. In the text this morning that we're going to look at, God is preparing his people for spiritual battle. He's preparing them to enter enemy territory. Now, let's... Remember where we are in this story and what Exodus is about. It's about a journey. It's about a journey of God's people from slavery to freedom. Remember, God rescues them from Egypt, from oppression. He dramatically uh, judges Pharaoh and he parts the Red Sea and leads the people through. And uh, they're safe and he brings them to Mount Sinai. He gives them his law. Next week we'll see how he makes a covenant with them. And their story is not over. He is leading them into the land that he promised Abraham. That's the ultimate goal. Not just to be free from Pharaoh, but to be settled safely in a new land, in their own home, where there can be peace and blessing and flourishing and, and full lives. They can live in the goodness of God. It turns out that the story of Exodus is a paradigm or a pattern for our story as Christians, because we are on a journey from slavery and death and sin to freedom. Not from Egypt to Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, but from sin to the cross to the future God has for us. You know, we have been brought through the waters, the waters of baptism. We have been given a new law that's been written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And now, Jesus is leading us forward to the place he's prepared for us. But there's a problem. The problem for Israel was that they were going into occupied territory. These people, the Canaanites and Hivites and Jebusites and Perizzites, are people that are not too friendly to Israel, <laughs> They don't want people coming in and living in their homeland. Um, uh, but there's also a spiritual 
battle. There are spiritual enemies. As Israel enters this land, there are shrines and statues and systems devoted to false gods, to forces of evil. And so there's a spiritual battle for their allegiance. It's the same for us. It's the same for us. Um, Our enemies are not human beings in this war that we're in. Our enemies are not human beings, but as Paul says, the spiritual forces of evil, rulers, authorities, the powers of this dark world, Ephesians 6. These are the things that are hostile to Jesus and his people and want to destroy our souls, to ensnare us in their power. The good news today that I have for you is that we do not need to be afraid because we have Jesus to lead us, to guard us, to guide us. He is stronger than our enemies and he will lead us to safety if we trust him. So we can look at these words that God spoke to Israel and we can actually see, we can translate them into promises and instructions for us as we follow Jesus in this world. Okay, so hope your Bible's open to Exodus 23, verse 20. Now let me just set the stage. Imagine yourself as an Israelite Out in the desert, you have no home, you see your tent, you see your sheep, you see your family, that's all you have. Uh, uh, You don't know where you're going, you don't know how to get there. All you know is that the place you're going already has people living in it, and by the way, these people have weapons, and horses, and fortresses, and armies, and lots of power. And so how does it feel to be homeless, directionless, vulnerable, and to have, you know, to think I'm heading into this land that is not friendly to me? Pretty scary. So how would it feel if you heard this, verse 20? God says, see, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Ah, okay. That's comforting. We have a guide. We have a guard. We have someone to go with us who is powerful. That changes everything. Now, this is really interesting. This, where it says angel, the word is messenger, and we've actually seen this character before. This was the angel in the burning bush speaking to Moses. It's the same being who was with, uh, who was leading Israel in the, in the cloud and the fiery pillar as they went toward the Red Sea. And from that cloud who, it says, fought against the Egyptians on Israel's behalf. And we're going to see this angel again in the story. Um, in fact, the lines between God and this angel, quote, angel, are very blurry. So that sometimes um, what the angel's doing, God seems to be doing himself. For example, verse 22, if you listen carefully, this is God speaking, if you listen carefully to what he says, the angel, and do all that I say, which means 
their words are the same, right? I will be an enemy to your enemies. Now, there are so many verbs in this passage that, that tell us what God slash this angel will do for his people. If you just scan down and see, he goes ahead, he guards, he blesses, he sends his terror, he drives out enemies. There's this interesting word picture of God sending the hornet ahead of his people. I love this. Have you ever been outside and you stepped on a yellow jacket's nest? Or you stirred up a hornet's or a wasp nest? And suddenly you are aware that something has caused you a lot of pain, stung you, and then you see this cloud of bees coming towards you. What do you do? You run. That's what God is saying. I'm going to give people so much terror that they run away. You know, you may not be strong, but I am, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase them out of the land that you will go to. So Israel has a powerful protector and guide and advocate and guard, and so do we. It's exactly the same for us, except better. You know, many biblical scholars, with good reason, believe that this angel is actually none other than Jesus. Not, not the incarnate Jesus, the man of Nazareth, but the pre-incarnate Son of God showing up in a supernatural way. He's always existed with the Father, right? Wouldn't he be active in his creation? Many, many people, and I, and I believe with them, that this is Jesus. And when we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus doing the same things that this guide would do. Jesus said things to his followers like this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. I am going ahead to prepare a place for you, that where I am you can also be. John 14. Or, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. Paul, Paul looks at Jesus and said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul was no fool. He knew that there were many spiritual enemies in this world, and he had borne the brunt of lots of those enemies. And he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have a powerful guard and advocate and guide in this life in Jesus and he is not just some messenger of God. He is himself full of God's power and wisdom and authority and omniscience. We all need to hear that truth today. If we focus more on the scary things in this world than we do on Jesus, we'll be in trouble. I want you to think for a minute about a situation in your life that gives you fear, that fills you with fear or anxiety or worry. Probably something to do with the future, with the unknown. What if? Or what will happen when? Or will I have enough? Think about that situation. Call it to mind. 
what difference would it make to know that Jesus has already been ahead of you to that unknown place? He has seen it. He knows where he's leading you. He is stronger than anything in your way. He guards you. He protects you. He guides you. And he is leading you now to the place he has prepared. Does that make a difference? It does to me. So let's focus on Jesus. Let's trust him. That's the first thing we need to do in this world of uh, enemy territory. Focus on Jesus. Listen to him. Trust him. Okay, but there's more in this passage. On the one hand, God promises to do all these things, and by the way, things that Israel cannot do for themselves. They can't go ahead of themselves, right, or guard themselves or guide themselves. They need God to do this. They can't send the hornet to drive out the people that live in the land. But it comes with an if. It comes with a condition. There's something that Israel must do and something that we must do if they want to make it to the journey's end. Look at verses 21 through 23. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. It's a stern warning. We'll actually come back to that. Verse 22, if you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. So they are instructed to listen to and to obey God, right? Listen to him. Don't stray. There's also something that they need to not do. Verse 24, do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. Okay? Don't bow down to idols. Worship me. Don't worship idols. He goes on. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God. And then he goes on in verse, 20, uh, verse 32. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Do you get the picture of what God is saying? It's like he's saying, don't make deals with the enemy. Don't, don't try to have it both ways, right? Don't dabble with those idols. Reject them. Destroy them. Be uncompromising. Um, can you imagine if my friend David had been, you know, helping his sister-in-law and kids get on the train, and just as the train was about to leave, one of the kids was like, oh, what's that over there, and runs away and picks up something and starts reading it, or maybe they, they see like a Russian flyer with Russian propaganda on it, and they're like, oh, this looks interesting. Maybe we should actually stay here because Putin's going to liberate our city, right? How silly would that be? They've got to get to safety. They've got to, they've got to get on that train. 
And I think in the same way, God is saying, don't get distracted. Don't make deals with the enemy. Don't be enticed. Now, why do you think Israel had to be warned not to worship these other gods? I mean, it seems like, of course, like just, they're just stupid statues and idols. They're not real. That's what it seems like to us. But, um, you know, archaeologists have discovered these large stone pillars that would have been propped up in these small villages. These are the sacred stones that he talks about in verse 24. These would have been ornately carved, you know, great craftsmanship, overlaid with gold or silver possibly, so they sparkled in the sun. And the worship of these gods was very enticing also. There was, um, you know, many things for the senses, incense and lots of good food and wine and sometimes even ritual prostitution. It was a very sensory experience to worship these gods, which was enticing and it looked good. Plus, there was a spiritual attraction to idols and there still is. Because idols promise something to the worshiper. They say, if you bow down to me, I will make your kids healthy. If you burn incense to me, I will give you a good harvest. It's about control and certainty and making sure that life goes your way. That's a very powerful, attractional force. Of course, the problem is they make promises that they can't deliver. They, they, they bait you with these promises, but then there's a hook. The lure has a hook on it, and they lead people to death. If you were an Israelite, you might think, um, you know, surely something that looks so beautiful and, and seems so good can't be that bad. Maybe we can just keep this statue up um, just as a monument or just to admire. Or maybe we can just worship this God once in a while to increase our chances of health and success, you know, and well-being. And God says, no, don't make deals with my enemies. Don't flirt with evil. So idols make promises that they can't deliver. Maybe an obvious one, let's think about our world today, which is filled with idols, with things that promise the worshiper happiness, but they don't deliver. Maybe an obvious one is addiction. You know how, you know that the cycle of addiction, whether it's, alcohol or drugs or pornography or, or even something like our phones or entertainment or food, something that promises pleasure and happiness and it, it sucks you in and it makes you dependent so that that thing is what you worship and orient your life around and then it falls, it makes you fall flat. We've all seen the, the wreckage left behind by addiction. But there are many others. What about, what about money? The idol of money. People do crazy stuff to get money, to save money, to keep money, to get, you know, 
more and more money, to make sure they don't lose the money they have, and it controls people's lives. But Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. You have to choose. Maybe you have made a deal with a certain sin. You said, I know that this probably isn't pleasing to God, but I need it to be happy. That's, that's an idol. That's a definition of an idol. And so I want to urge you in the, in the strength of God to, to smash that idol, to turn away from it. Picture it if it helps. Picture it like one of those big bear traps that as you put more weight on it, someday soon it's going to snap and it's going to hurt you a lot. Every time we defy an idol in our culture, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Let me tell you a story about a famous idol smasher in history. <clears throat> His name was, was Boniface. In the early 700s A.D., a Christian bishop named Boniface was sent as a missionary to um, what is now Germany, to the Germanic tribes, uh, they had had some Christian contact, but they were still pretty um, uh, pagan. Their, their culture was pagan. They worshipped the spirits of the trees and the water and uh, different Greek and Roman, uh, Norse gods, rather. One of the main gods they worshipped was Thor. You know, the guy with the big hammer, the Marvel character? Before Marvel, before the Avengers, there was the Thor God that people actually worshipped and trusted in and bowed down to. And one of the main ways people worshipped Thor was to go to sacred trees. He was supposedly, he supposedly resided spiritually in certain trees. And so in this town where Boniface went to preach, there was a huge oak tree the Oak of Donar, it even had its own name. <laughs> and this was the shrine of Thor. So Boniface was preaching the gospel, noticing that some people believed, but others were still, were still on the fence or were still devoted to Thor. Some people were worried that if they turned from Thor, he would hit them with his hammer, you know? He was the god of lightning and thunder, so you wouldn't want to make that guy angry. So Boniface said... I'm going to have a showdown between the gods. I'm going to do something to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Thor is not. So he got an axe and he walked out to that sacred tree and people started gathering. What is going to happen? Christians were there saying, oh, this is going to be great. And pagans were there thinking, I can't believe what this guy is about to do. And we, we have reason to believe it's a true story, although it's probably been embellished. But the way the story goes, he swings his axe against that sacred oak and takes one big notch out of it. And at that moment, a huge windstorm came up and blew the tree over and so, let, so that it, it, it exploded into a hundred pieces. And with the oak, with the tree, the, sorry, the wood of that tree 
the story goes, Boniface built a church where Jesus was worshipped. Isn't that a great picture of defying the idols of a culture and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord? What would it look like for us to defy the idols around us in our culture? I, I would not recommend destroying public property or literally smashing anything that doesn't belong to you. Okay? <laughs> um, but if we are truly following Jesus, we may do some things that look as crazy and radical as cutting down that oak tree, something that the culture reveres. It could, you know, it could be as simple as gathering for worship on Sundays even though there are so many fun activities being planned on Sunday mornings now. Our culture has moved on from church. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are here, but we, we live in this culture that no longer values setting aside time to worship. What would it look like if we committed to that and kept committed to that? It could mean defying the idol of money by giving lots of it away. And I know a lot of you are already doing that, by the way. You're a generous church. And when you give generously and sacrificially, you smash the idol of money. And there's blessing that comes with that. It could mean defying the idol of self and self-gratification that tells us we can do whatever we want with our body as long as no one gets hurt, right? That's what our culture says. That is an idol in our culture. But we say, no, I'm going to honor Jesus with my body. I'm going to only have sex in marriage. I'm going to um, take care of my body. I'm going to uh, learn what it means to be a Christian man or woman. I'm going to use my body to help others. Right? Or if you are raising children... This may be an especially pertinent thing for you. Don't let the world around you decide how to raise your kids. Don't let your kids be raised with a screen telling them what is true and what is good. That's our job as Christian parents and a church to nurture their faith. Now, if you're like me, as I conclude this, um, you may feel that, you know, you've already failed. I've already failed at a lot of these things. Um, where's the good news for people who have failed to follow Jesus, to people who have bowed to idols? Well, paradoxically, we can see this by going back to verse 21, which says, Do not rebel against him, he will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. Hmm. So God says he will not forgive their rebellion. And earlier in chapter 23, he had said, I will not acquit the guilty. How is that good news for us? <laughs> well, here's the strange thing. If we read this whole story closely, we'll learn that God actually never followed through with that threat. Uh, it was almost as if 
his mercy was always greater than his judgment. Now, there were and are consequences for those who disobey God. Uh, we're going to see in a few Sundays, we'll get to the, the golden calf and how bad that was. But God's mercy outlasts his, just, his judgment. And we see that most clearly in Jesus. Jesus died to give himself for our rebellion, for our sin, and to absorb all of the judgment that we deserve and to give us forgiveness. That's, Jesus went into the heart of the spiritual war that we're in and he gave himself and then he rose from the grave and defeated evil for good and now reigns with the Father from heaven so that we can know the battle is already won and we are forgiven, we are free, we are loved. We are not fighting a losing battle. We're fighting a battle that's already been won. One day the whole earth, as it says in Scripture, will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Not just to that one little patch of ground in, in uh Israel, but to the whole earth, the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we're doing. And so as we follow Jesus through enemy territory now, take courage that he is with you, that he goes before you, that all idols will fall before him, that the war has already been won. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen.